Today's episode of Peers to Peers is powered by Shopify, the leading global commerce company that's shaping today's entrepreneurial economy. What started as three mates in a coffee shop trying to sell a snowboard has ended in thousands of employees around the world, bringing over 1.7 million businesses to life. You could say Shopify is a peer to us and entrepreneurs around the world. So peers, if you're looking to start your own business, head to shopify.com.au for your 14-day free trial. Hello, peers, and welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by Shopify. Peers speaking, peers listening. This is a conversation for you. I'm your host, Michelle Akidinol, founder of Leading Australian Podcast Agency and 2021 Australian Podcast Awards finalists, The Peers Project, and your fellow passionate peer. Each week, I invite an inspiring millennial entrepreneur from around the globe to chat with me. No filters, just real talk, peer to peer. Together, we unpack what it takes to go your own way, pursue your passion, and why there's really nothing better. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please do pass it on. The more peers, the merrier. Hello, peers, and welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by Shopify. When did you notice that the world isn't what you thought, peers? Today's guest grew up surrounded by strong and independent women. But it wasn't until she was 12 years old when she realized the impact that gender inequalities have on society. As a result of her upbringing, Paloma Shakert now dedicates herself to creating jobs for women in the apparel manufacturing industry. In today's episode, Paloma shares the story of co-founding Ethical Apparel Africa, why she's committed to helping women become financially independent, and why it's so important that we work towards closing the gender inequality gap. For those of you who haven't yet posted about our podcast on your socials, or if you're new here, firstly, welcome. And please do take a screenshot of this episode right now, post it to your Instagram story, and tag us at the Peers Project, so that other peers out there can benefit from the wisdom of these incredible millennial entrepreneurs and help us on our mission to empower you all to pursue what you're most passionate about through entrepreneurship. Okay, peers, without further ado, welcome Paloma. Paloma, welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. We're so excited to have you on the show today. Thank you. It's great to be here. Of course. You know, you and I recently connected and when I looked into you and all of the incredible work you're doing in the garment manufacturing space, I knew I had to have you come on the show. So I really appreciate you taking the time. That's so great that you reached out. I appreciate it. And it's not often that I get a chance to kind of sit back and reflect on things. So this is great. Awesome. So for those of us who don't know who you are and what you do, tell us a little bit about yourself. 
Yeah, so I co-founded an apparel manufacturing business about seven years ago now with my business partner, Karen. I'm originally from Seattle, Washington. To take the long route in the story, I grew up in a family with some really, really strong women. Both of my grandmothers went to college and worked. My mom had an incredible career internationally, managing 200 people around the world. So I just grew up seeing women as able to do anything they wanted to. But then when you take a step back, and as I started to become more aware of how the world actually works, our generation is perhaps the first that's been told growing up that they could do anything they wanted to, and that that could be somewhat true in very specific upper echelons of privilege, and still not completely true. So as I had more opportunities to learn more about other places in the world, from a young age, I traveled to the Dominican Republic, to West Africa, stayed with homestay families, worked on different types of projects, mostly in the development space. It just became so clear the extent to which women do not typically have those types of opportunities. So that became very important to me. But that ultimately led me to think a lot about formal job creation for women and how you do that in a sustainable way. And that research pointed me towards the garment industry as the place to try to create some change. Oh my goodness. I love that. So many strong women. Wow. I mean, you know, growing up, I can only imagine looking at your grandparents, looking at your mother, like how did that shape you in the very early days? You know, did you kind of think, oh, I can do anything too. And women are just, they rule the world or, you know, and I guess how did that play out for you in kind of your teen years? Yeah, I think initially it wasn't even so much of a question, right? It's just like it's in the water you drink or the air you breathe. You just take it for granted, which was a beautiful thing. And I loved growing up as a girl. And, you know, I just felt so much strength and power around that. And then as you learn more about the world and the inequities that exist, I think it just becomes a call to action to try to support other women from a structural standpoint to access those same levels of opportunity, or at least to be able to access some level of economic power for themselves. Do you remember the point in which you realized that we weren't all equal? Why, as women, do we not have the same opportunities, seen the same way, all that kind of stuff? Do you remember when that point was and what was that realization time like for you? Yeah, I don't know if anyone's actually ever asked me that question, but it's a really good one. I think it was probably when I was maybe 10, 12 years old. And I went with my grandmother on my dad's side of the family who lives in El Paso, Texas to work, not work. I was not working. She was working. I was accompanying her to spend some time in the communities in Northern Mexico around Juarez in the Maquiladores and the regions where everyone works in Maquiladores. And it's two realizations at once, generally what poverty looks like and lack of opportunity. And then also what that looks like for women in particular in terms of an even more inequitable experience. And just seeing the, they were trying to do some kind of handicraft projects and other things to help women be able to earn money. Whereas a lot of the men were able to go and work and do other things economically. And a lot of the women as well were heading single families. So that stuck with me. And then a couple of years later, I had the opportunity as part of a high school program, actually, to spend a summer in the Dominican Republic staying with a homestay family and working on like microfinance, micro savings for women programs. And again, working on is the light use of the term. It was more a learning experience for me than anything else. 
12 years old is very young. I mean, I so resonate with what you're saying, Paloma, and I think so many of our peers out there listening can too. I think our generation, we grew up with this, you know, girls run the world and, you know, we've got it all. But it's so interesting that for you, that realisation hit at like 12 and then, you know, heading into your teens. For our peers out there listening who feel that injustice, what can we do, you know, to kind of combat this? And I think for you, when you realised that at that young age, was there a shift? Was there something that you consciously started doing to kind of help solve this problem? Yeah, I've always kind of felt a spur to action around what I focused on first from an education standpoint, but then to prepare me to do something from a career standpoint, that feels more natural to me for whatever reason than the small but mighty in some actions we can take as individuals, you know, as consumers and how we live our lives. So I really focused in on wanting to contribute to international development. And initially, as I progressed into university and started having a lot of different experiences around this, I thought that I wanted to pursue like a PhD in development economics and study the different ways that aid and philanthropy could be more effective in emerging economies. And that was fascinating work. I loved some professors I had and working for organizations like Innovations for Poverty Action and JPAL that really rigorously scientifically study if you want to keep a girl in school, what is the best use of a dollar? Is it a deworming program or a textbook or a school uniform? You know, those types of questions. But I became a little bit disillusioned, not with the work itself, I think it's brilliant, but with its fit for my patience levels of mechanisms of change, because it takes a long time to do those studies and then to drive policy change from that and then to actually see the benefit happening for real people. And I ran a couple small studies for organizations like IPA. And a lot of the women at the time we were doing a study in Northern Ghana on access to savings accounts and financial mechanisms for women entrepreneurs. A lot of the women would come up to me after the focus groups and say, you know, it's great to have a bank account, but what I would really like is a job. And that's just such a natural human tendency. And I think a lot of the discourse in the development community at the time, this was like 2010, was so focused on microfinance is going to change the world for everyone that it just kind of missed the fundamental reality that in a lot of places there's only 10 or 15% formal employment and even lower for women. And that's not because people don't want steady jobs that can give them a paycheck to feed their families and send their kids to school. It's because there is an industry, which is the private sector and the ability to bring that mechanism of change to emerging economies has been the most powerful antidote to poverty that we've seen in the past decades. It's so incredible that you then focused in on that and honed in on that. You know, I think there's so many learnings from just that realization that you had to take action in that way, you know, for our peers out there listening who maybe are feeling really frustrated by a problem that they're seeing and they just don't know what the right approach is, or perhaps if they can truly make a difference through going out there and starting something like what you did, you know, what advice would you give to us around firstly that problem definition and then those really early steps that we need to take in order to actually kind of get started? It's funny because I never actually set out to found a company. A lot of my peers when I was in college were 
very vocally entrepreneurial, like looking for different ideas, wanted to be a founder, wanted to be in charge of a new idea, new something, a startup. It was very in vogue. But I always kind of felt like I just wanted to be contributing to work that I believed in, where the purpose and the mechanism was something that I really thought was making a difference. And I think it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, go start your own X. I think it can be, think really carefully about what kind of change in the world you're most passionate about. And then just do a lot of listening and observation and talking to people around what are the most effective things out there today that are driving that change. And then a separate question of what am I really good at and what lights me up in terms of actual work process and skill set and how can I marry those two things? I think a lot of people, especially just coming out of college or young in their careers, really want to live all their values right away. And that's so admirable, but I also think there's a real place for making sure that you can contribute effectively. <laughs> and those don't always go hand in hand immediately, but careers are really long, <laughs> so that's okay. <laughs> you know, I actually spent a couple years in management consulting right after I graduated from college, and I got a certain level of flack from like acquaintances and peers from a purpose standpoint about going off to do that. But just because, you know, everyone's very idealistic and driven at that point in their lives, which is great. But for me, it was the best thing because it really just honed an ability to, yeah, be an effective actor, executor from a business standpoint. So, yeah. I love that advice. And it's so the opposite of what we hear a lot these days, as you said, you know, it's for our generation. It's just so ironic because this is kind of what this show is about a little bit, but I think it's more centered in on doing what's right for you. And I think that's so powerful that for you, you were that really structured environment and that kind of corporate experience gave you what you needed. Talk to us a little bit about Bain. I think you were there for almost four years, which is a solid amount of time these days. What was that time like for you? And what were some of the biggest learnings for you during that time? Definitely. It was actually only two and a half years. So that was great because it was baptism of fire to a certain extent. But to be honest, I loved it (laughs) because it depends always on who you're surrounded by, what the culture is. And the purpose was not there for me very clearly in terms of what drives me and what excites me ultimately. But the work itself and the teams and the learning was phenomenal. You know, in a very short period of time, being able to really feel at ease presenting to and interacting with really senior business executives and having a sense that, oh, I actually can add value in these settings. It's just a huge accelerator of effectiveness. And really that comes down to how you're mentored. And the thing that made a huge difference for me from the very beginning when I started and every firm is different, but at Bain at this time with the managers and leaders that I encountered, there was a big focus on okay, so what are your career goals and what do you want to do next after you leave? Like there was never a sense of if you don't just toe the line and say, I want to be a partner at Bain, that, you know, that's the only acceptable answer. There was a real passion about doing what those mentors and managers could to encourage and help you to move on to the next step of what was important to you in your career growth. I think that's so, so interesting. And I think as entrepreneurs, and I'm sure our peers out there listening can relate, it's funny when we find ourselves in those positions where we're bringing on people and we're working with, and obviously you've got an incredible bunch of women 
over in Ghana that, you know, you manage and lead and all of that. What were some of those greatest leadership lessons that you took from those managers during that time? I think the biggest lesson was after I'd left Bain, another thing that was fantastic is I actually left on a six month externship where you still have some degree of support and, you know, health coverage and that kind of thing. And then was able to parlay that experience into starting a business. And as we started the business, we were very bootstrap. You're doing everything from organizing the office to recruiting, et cetera. That was manageable in terms of the development of a culture that I felt proud of. That felt manageable and natural when we had six people, seven people, eight people in the office. Once we grew to a level where you could not personally anymore interface with everyone, and you had to think about mechanisms to create a culture that would cascade beyond you, that really made me appreciate how good Bain was at creating culture and how it's not necessarily always intuitive and automatic. You really have to give it thought and make sure that the people around you are equipped to be stewards and to really drive that level of energy and values alignment and focus on developing your people. I love that. I personally am so intrigued by that because I think people management, at least for me, it's it's one of the toughest things. I think as an entrepreneur, we're, we're great at the visionary and we're great at the strategy, but, you know, people management, that's just, and your people are everything. It, it's the toughest thing. I want to dive a bit deeper into the decision to leave. You know, I think so many of us find ourselves in these situations where it's so comfortable and, you you know, it's lovely and it's great and we're getting all the learnings and, you know, maybe it's not 100% aligned, but like we've got great colleagues and, you know, we're working on really interesting things and, you know, deep down we feel this inkling to do something perhaps a little bit more, but it's comfortable in so many ways, you know, for you when did that time happen? And I guess, how did you gain the courage to kind of step away and realign? I think it was easier for me in a way because I always knew that was the plan. Like from the very beginning, joining and getting into it, I knew that I wanted to leave again and that I wanted to pivot to something that was women's economic empowerment in sub-Saharan Africa. I was pretty focused. But that means that it's still, especially making the leap from a financial insecurity point of view is a very scary thing to do, uh, for sure. When it was kind of a unique situation, because when I left for Ghana, which was meant to be a six-month externship, I was actually into business school, was possibly going to go back to Bain to have Bain pay for business school for a year after that. Like I had a whole other plan charted out. But after that period, I was very clear that I wanted to do exactly this of something focused on economic power for women and probably in the apparel industry. And so what that externship did is it gave me six months to start diving into that potential. And what I found in meeting Karen and in meeting all of these Ghanaian women entrepreneurs that owned SMEs, huge potential. I basically had at my fingertips the exact thing that I was planning to do like three years from then. And so I just figured, you know what, this is silly. I'm going to do it now. So it ended up being very kind of serendipitous of all the right ingredients at the table at the right time, which made it pretty easy to jump. You know, for our peers out there listening who just perhaps they're thinking about quitting, they've been working on their side hustle for 
a year, two years now, and it's not yet financially viable, but perhaps it could get there and they're really considering that leap. And perhaps it's not going to be as beautifully laid out and whatnot. What advice would you give to us around Firstly, the right time. I think that's a question we get a lot, the right time. And then also the courage to go out and do it. Yeah, I think it depends from a pragmatic point of view. It depends also a lot on the support systems you have around you. And that's just the reality. And it's often an unfair reality because that differs according to a lot of factors that are not in people's control. But in my case, I had been in a long-term relationship with my now husband and felt a lot of support from that, was very supported by my parents as well in terms of just an encouragement to do what I had always set out to do, even if it wasn't completely baked and fully secure. And that makes a huge difference. I think from a tangibly, yes, but also psychologically, emotionally, in terms of just feeling that level of support and that those people will be there for you regardless of how that works out. It's hard to give advice on this because I think every situation is so different. And I do want to echo kind of the customary of advice of jump, it's your passion. You only have one life, one career span. And I think that is in large part the right advice because you can always pivot Also, you know, nothing is irreparable. If you leave one job and you try it and it doesn't work out, like you probably have the career trajectory to be able to go back and get another stable job. And maybe that second job is even something that fills you up a bit more than the last one did. Yeah, change is always possible. When was there a time for you where you thought that change wasn't possible and that a pivot for you just seemed really not right? Yeah, there was a period early on in building the business when it just felt like things were not coming together. And I remember having one conversation with Karen and I was just like, we're pushing on this lever and it feels like the wheel is not turning because it was very, very hard in the beginning to get brands, companies to consider sourcing from West Africa. It was a completely unknown region seven years ago. And putting that on the map and getting companies to take a chance and then having to deal with making the wrong types of orders because you have to just take what you can get. And that was a really tricky period. And I felt so committed to the vision and the ethos of what we were trying to do and so solid in our partnership as well with my co-founder that, you know, it just felt like I don't want to change course. This is the thing that we are meant to do and we've got the right ingredients to do it, but it just wasn't coming together. And that was, I would say like a six month period or so of where it felt pretty dark for a while, but it turned around. I want to talk a bit about the dark side of business because I feel like we just don't hear about it enough. And I want to just delve into how you were feeling during those six months. I mean, I've experienced it probably for a period of like almost a year to two years in the early days. You know, I think it's so normal, but I don't think it's talked about enough. So dragging yourself to try and just make it happen. I'm guessing a lot of hustle involved. You know, what was that time like for you? And how did you just keep going even when you couldn't see the light at the end of the tunnel? I think a big portion of what felt so difficult and heavy was the disconnect between our ideals and vision and what we wanted to do and how we wanted to do it 
and then what we could do, <laughs> just practically, tangibly. <laughs> and a lot of that is around how you show up for people around you, right? The partner factories that we were working for, the clients that we were working for, because you're putting your integrity on the line as a founder and an owner of a business. And, you know, you're the face that is making commitments to say, I'm going to go after this and I'm going to try and do this. And you have to kind of be that vision point in the future where you're ultra confident to everyone around you that it's all going to come together because if you don't project that it will never happen and all of those pieces have to line up in order for it to happen so that level of faith and putting yourself out there to that extent if you start to do that a couple of times when you are getting up a really steep new learning curve and something falls apart and you feel like you've let other people down that's really painful and i think a lot of that I don't know that I did this at the time. I probably didn't. But I think if others are going through that, what I would say is just it's really important to give yourself grace. And just because you're not able to get to that vision point yet doesn't mean that it's not extremely important to put that out there. And people understand if you have somewhere you want to be in terms of you know how we are going to outfit our working environments, what our well-being initiatives are going to be, how we're going to do career development. Like just because you're not able to do all of that all at once doesn't mean that it's not important that you articulate those goals and values because people understand that everything is a work in progress over time. I love that. How can we get better at giving ourselves grace? I think in a way it's become easier for me to do this since I had my daughter a year ago, because I think it's just so important to have different aspects of your life where you are complete without needing to be on all the time. And having something that is important enough to you that you know you need to turn off the work side, the entrepreneurial side, the founder side for a while and just focus in on something else that has been really helpful for me, at least personally. Oh my goodness. Paloma, this has been so, so interesting. And oh my goodness, I'm just loving this chat, but I am mindful of your time. So I've got a couple of final questions for you. And the first one is, what has been your greatest failure and win to date? So this has been a big learning for me. We started a partnership a couple of years ago in the business with a new client. We grew extremely quickly with this one client and there wasn't necessarily great values alignment there, but we thought, you know what, they're willing to take a chance. And we were very early stage in the new factory that we had acquired. So we went with it and I was so excited about the growth and the trajectory and what we could accomplish with the level of business that we we're building to. And that long story short, and through the pandemic and et cetera, et cetera, that ended up really backfiring on us. And all of the things that you knew to be true in terms of don't take on too much client concentration risk, make sure there's great values alignment. Like these are truisms, right? Everybody knows, <laughs> knows to pay attention to those things. But sometimes I think the excitement of growth can override just being really wise and prudent and maybe hitting the brakes a little bit, which feels so unnatural when you have been chomping at the bit to grow for so long. I would say just sticking to your judgment and taking a step back sometimes to say, okay, I know this is appealing, but <laughs> it was a big learning. 
I think that's so, so valuable. And that's just hit home for me personally, as we are starting to kind of grow up that growth trajectory. And you're so right around this idea of, well, it's the growth and that's what I've been working towards. But that was just such a personal reminder for me. And I'm sure so many of our peers out there listening around that consideration and just kind of taking our time when we feel like perhaps it's not 100% aligned. And your greatest win Our greatest win, I'm so excited about what we've been doing over the last couple of years. So we entered into a partnership. We actually acquired the majority share of a factory about a year and a half, two years ago with a wonderful local partner and have grown that into what we're calling a model factory for the region. It's the first time that we've actually owned manufacturing capacity ourselves because we really wanted to be able to put into practice everything we had been preaching from an operational excellence point of view, workforce well-being, impact programs, etc. And we've been able to grow that from 50 to over 500 people within an 18-month period. We're the largest solar-powered garment factory in West Africa. I'm really proud of how we are now innovating and just charting a new path around everything that we can do to make it a best place to work for all of our employees. Oh, congrats. That is massive. Oh my goodness. Paloma, over the last seven plus years, you've really gone from strength to strength. You've received a lot of external recognition for your work and recently you were featured on the Forbes 30 under 30 list. What are three key pieces of advice that you would give our peers out there listening that you wish you got when you were just starting out? I would say, and everyone probably says this, but it bears repeating, the people you hire are the most important decisions you can make. I think as well, I've said this already, but reiterating it, not being afraid to be really bold about your values and your vision, even if you're nowhere near there yet, but being clear that you're on a journey to get there. And I think being willing to pivot as well. This model factory initiative that we took on was a complete departure from the business model that we started with. And it's been a really powerful way to grow our impact. And that came out of some brainstorming sessions with our leadership team, just kind of throwing things around and taking a step back from the operating environment. So those are very valuable as well. I love it. So before I ask you the final question, Paloma, I just want to take a moment to acknowledge you for the incredible work you've done and that you're doing, you know, for showing us and particularly us young, ambitious women that if we have that vision, that goal and that dream, we actually can go out there and make it a reality. Perhaps it won't go 100% as planned, but nothing does. And as long as we stick at it, we can get there. So for that, we really appreciate you. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful chatting with you. (laughs) You too. So the final question is how we finish every episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. And that is, what is the value of pursuing what you're most passionate about? I think a huge piece of it is no regrets, right? (laughs) You get to the end of your life and you think, what have I done and what's mattered? And obviously work is not the only thing that matters, but it's what you spend most of your waking hours doing. And if you have a burning passion that you've ignored for decades, it's going to eat at you. So you might as well try it, right? It doesn't even have to always be successful. I think trying it is a huge part of personal success. 
I love it. Paloma, thank you so, so much. It has been an absolute blast chatting. Where can we learn more about you and Ethical Apparel Africa? Thank you. So we are terrible at social media, unfortunately, because, <laughs> because we're entirely B2B, so it's not a business focus, but we have an active LinkedIn page, however, um, and you can always find out more about us on our website, www.ethicalapparelafrica.com. Amazing. We'll link them up in the show notes. Thank you so much again. And for everyone else listening, we will end with that. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by Shopify. Remember, Peers, we're here to help you turn your passion into a business. And so is Shopify. And so if you're looking to start your biz, head to shopify.com.au for your 14-day free trial. Peers, that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by Shopify. We hope you've enjoyed your introduction to our latest guest peer and that you find them as gung-ho as we do. For more, make sure to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. We produce with passion and it doesn't stop here. To see what else we're up to, visit thepeersproject.com or follow us on Instagram at thepeersproject. We'll have fresh, real talk for you next week, peers. Until then, if you need inspiration, look amongst your peers. Peers.